The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark. Can you hear me? If you can hear me, say amen. amen. If you can hear me, say I love Jesus. I want some fish. Before we get to the food, we got to eat to the spiritual nourishment. Amen, somebody. Just touch the person next to you and say, I got to eat the word now. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. Y'all know I'm silly. Uh, thank you guys, especially uh, those that are visiting us for the first time. My name is Michael Davis, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I have the privilege of standing before you and breaking God's word and dividing it. I'm not going to say anything from my own human wisdom. I'm going to say everything from the word of God. Amen, somebody? Uh, shout out again to Lamont on for being here. I know uh, y'all trust, I don't know how y'all trust Kevin and George, but uh, I, I thank y'all for trusting them brothers. Um, as we got, dive into God's word, I, I do want to say that Richard last week said that he had three sermons that he had prepared, and I said to myself, why would I prepare this week, and I could just take one of those three sermons, two other sermons that he didn't use. So this is just one of the other sermons that he didn't use. So uh, if I say anything crazy, it's because of Richard. Uh, let me pray before we got into God's word. Father, we thank you for your marvelous love and grace that continues to be bestowed upon us because you love us unconditionally. There is nothing we can do, Lord, to push you away. You're a God that chastens us in such a way that we are broken down to recognize that there is someone that loves us far beyond anything that we can comprehend. Help us to see that this morning through your word and understanding how Paul is talking to your church and what it means for us today. For it is in Jesus' mighty name we say together as God's people. Amen. We say together as God's people. Amen. Amen. In the article titled, There is No Solving the Mystery of Christ by Andrew Greeley, he states, this, much of Christian, the history of Christianity has been devoted to domesticating Jesus, to reducing that elusive, enigmatic, paradoxical person to dimensions that we can comprehend, understand, and convert to our own purpose. So far, it hasn't worked. Essentially, what he is trying to say that as human beings and our finite being through areas of philosophy, through areas of theology and science and every other sort of thing that we try to box Jesus into, we try to make him something that's suitable for us. Many of you probably remember it because it was the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. We wanted him to be our homeboy. 
Uh, many of us remember it because we try to make Jesus something that is comfortable, something that's conducive for where we are. But truth is not comfortable. Truth is not culturally appeasing. Truth is countercultural. Truth moves us in such a way that it helps us to see that the gospel is not anti-intellectual. The gospel is not only for one ethnic group. The gospel does not defend one ethnic group, nor is the, does the gospel have limits in the way that you parent your kids. The, the gospel isn't partisan in its politics. The gospel is not a white man's religion. If you were to listen to Vince Bontooth or just Jude 3, you would see that today a lot of people would fight or go against the gospel because they make it for one people group. It transcends our view of justice. The way that we think that we care for one another, the way we think that we care for the poor, the gospel transcends the reality in which we should care for one another, that we should care for those that are sick, that are marginalized and oppressed. The gospel transcends every benchmark that we try to put in place in order to measure it with our own limited view. See, if you were here last week, you would understand that as Richard was preaching, this is a continuation from where Paul was talking from Colossians 1, 24 through 29 about this powerful gospel that he wrestles and struggles with. But you can see through his flow throughout the chapter 1 where people are struggling with hearing various different philosophies or false gospels. What Paul is trying to essentially do is root and ground these people who are in the four small house churches, who are probably poor individuals who never heard anything about Jesus. He's trying to root them in the fact that the things that you are hearing from Epaphras, from this missionary, are the very things that are true and can transform your life as they already done. They've moved you from, from darkness to light. They moved you from death to life. And see, the reason I say the things, and I think that we struggle with trying to domesticate Jesus, is because we don't have a framework oftentimes for how he impacts our lives. The purpose of understanding the truth of the gospel, this gospel truth, is that it empowers us to combat every lie and false gospel that comes into our life. That's what I want you to understand, that it gives us the, the ability to actually fight. It is our sword, right? It is the very thing that girds us up in order for us to continue to walk through life. But I know that many of us may feel as if well, I've been wrestling with this and how it's trying to shape me because I don't know how it's transforming my life. I don't even know if this thing is relevant for where we are today. How can this truth actually mean something to me? I've heard it time and time again, Mike, and I'm still struggling where I am. How is this gospel transforming me? I'm still struggling with my addiction. I'm still feeling as if I'm alone. I feel as if this gospel is not relevant for where I am today. It doesn't speak to my narrative, and I don't feel as if it's sufficient. But I think that this morning I want to get to two points to answer that. To answer the very thing and give you the tools in order to fight, to know how to fight the things that tell you that you're not good enough that this gospel is not true, that this is not for all people. It's the fact that the gospel truth, number one, the point number one, trains us on how to fight, period. The gospel truth trains us on how to fight. And the second point is this, the gospel truth actually gives us confidence in Christ and not ourselves. 
The gospel truth gives us confidence in Christ and not in ourselves. So when we go to verse 1, I want you to realize that Paul is continuing. He, I don't feel as if they picked up the pen at this point. He says, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at uh, Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, who've not seen me in the flesh, I want you to understand my struggle how great a struggle it is. In fact, he's saying right in verse 29, if you go right above that, he's saying, this, for this I toil, struggling with all energy that he, meaning Jesus Christ, powerfully works within me. Just pause there for a second. Anybody ever taught you how to fight? You ever get in your first fight and you're just like, I don't know how to fight, right? And then you, 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 you ever see somebody fight and they're just throwing their hands like this? Right? They don't know how to fight. They ain't never been in a fight. But a fight always helps you to know that this same word, struggle, is a wrestle. It's a wrestling what Paul is doing in prayer where he is saying, I know how to fight. And my fighting doesn't come with me trying to wrestle with my own intellectual abilities or trying to put forth my own efforts. In fact, if I were to answer the question of how does Paul emphasize this struggle, what does he say? That you ought to fight in prayer by making sure that you root yourself wrestling just like Jacob with God in a fight, making sure that you say, I won't let you go until you bless me. This may not be a situation where you can understand, but some of y'all may understand where you're on your knees and you're trying to pray to God, but you don't feel like you're just getting through. You feel as if, I don't know if God is listening to me. I don't, I don't understand if he can hear me. But what Paul is saying is that I empathize with you, church. And I understand where you are. And I understand in such a deep way that I'm wrestling in my prayer life. What does that mean? Many of us who don't understand how to wrestle in your prayer life, what it means is that you don't leave that spot until you sense the peace of God. And that spot is not just a moment. See what I'm saying? That spot is just not staying on your knees. That spot is if you are falling on your knees and then you feel as if I've been in the prayer for five minutes and I, I still don't hear the Lord, but then you get in your car and you start it up and then you turn on your radio or you have it on for a, a, just a silent moment. I want you to understand that you can still call on the Lord and wrestle as you're on your way on I-40, as you're going down Poplar, as you're going down Union or Walnut Grove. You can wrestle with the Lord as you are walking to your class or you are sitting in the lunchroom, the point is that a momentary prayer is, doesn't mean that it's a ceaseless prayer. A momentary prayer doesn't mean that it's a ceaseless prayer. In fact, that we ought to be challenged in our prayer lives to understand that yes, there's mental exhaustion, spiritual exhaustion. We all have fatigue. We are not superhumans. We are not superhumans. It's hard to look at the news and see people dying. It's hard to see people dying in our own communities. It's hard to struggle with the addictions. It's hard to hear things that actually try to tell me that this is not the gospel that you need to believe in. It's hard to hear these things combating against you and fighting against you. But what I want to tell you this morning, I think that Paul is saying is that a fervent prayer is a wrestling prayer. A fervent prayer is a consistent prayer. A prayer that means that you are agonizing and feeling the pain in which 
You may be praying for someone else. You may be praying for your community. You may be praying for what, what is to come on the political landscape. You may have felt this week that your candidate didn't get in, but it doesn't mean that your prayers don't work. Y'all talking with me this morning. What, I'm, what, I, what I think that we oftentimes have to understand, and, and particularly me as a pastor, I, I, I always define my ministry when I first started. I remember going to seminary, and they had a conversation with us. They said, this is going to be the most spiritually difficult season of your life. That you will, you will wrestle with things that you don't, you're not aware of and, and you're not, you won't be able to forecast. And they were absolutely true. Through my, just my life, and, and one of my best friends in seminary, I lost my mother and then I lost my biological father within less than a year of first starting seminary. As soon as I declared that I was going to walk in this mission or this vision of my life, I felt as if there was just an attack. And so, you know, I, I just told my staff this week, I, and I, in that season, it's hard for me to walk and be vulnerable and transparent and not say that I'm overwhelmed. But see, Paul teaches me something in this passage. That he said, you can say that you're struggling. You can say that you feel overwhelmed. You can say that you're hurt, that you're broken. You can say that you don't know if you can keep walking. But the gospel is so strong and it's so powerful, you can call on the Lord and hold on to him. And I realized that because, yes, I went through a season of counseling, but my family was in disarray. I was driving to work and I was driving to school and I was in my mother's car and I was thinking to myself, how can I keep going on doing schoolwork and I got all of this trauma going on in my life? The fact of the matter is, is that the best sustainability for a fight, to understand as a boxer, you need to have a good stance. And my stance had to be the gospel. My stance had to be Jesus. That every swing that I took, even though that I felt as if my prayers were, were, were not connecting like a punch, even though that I felt as if I don't know if I can keep fighting in this fight. You see, the thing about a boxer, what we understand is that he has a trainer. And as the boxer is training and he is in the middle of the fight, some of the things that he remembers is with the very thing that the trainer had been saying the entire time. Hit left, go under and make sure you keep a jab, keep your feet moving. But see, you take some punches every time, right? Some of those punches hurt. And so you got to go back to the corner. And somebody's talking in your ears to trainer. And he is showing you how to fight. He is showing you how to connect the punch. And all I want to tell you is the trainer that is in our corner is Jesus. That as you try to pause in life, oftentimes, if you just make church, if you just make community, if you just make the Bible something that you try to use every now and then, you won't know how to be trained. But the Bible is something, the Word of God and the connection of prayer helps us to fight in such a way that the trainer says to us everything that we need to do to our opponent and how we ought to strike our opponent. And all we got to do is trust in the trainer. If you do that, brothers and sisters, I guarantee that God will demonstrate that this wrestling, wrestling in prayer goes far beyond 
anything that we can comprehend or imagine. But also, we fight through Christ and with community. We fight through Christ and with community. The struggle for community is to be encouraged. I want y'all to hear this. The struggle, he's saying the reason I struggle is so that they can be encouraged, knit together in love, and have full assurance. They can be encouraged, knit together in love, and have full assurance. The idea in which one is actually through community, through community and courage, is to be able to be instilled with a level of courage. To be instilled with a level of courage. Some of y'all do not want to admit that you're fearful and walk in this life. Some of you are paralyzed when you come into church, paralyzed when you come into Christian communities, paralyzed when you are entering into something that is trying to transform your life. But, can I, but, but what Paul is saying to them in a Jewish community where they would be just like you, not understanding what this is that they are being introduced to, that they are not individuals who come from a Jewish background. These are Gentiles and they've been worshiping idols and temples and conforming themselves to those things and yet the gospel has yet got a hold of their hearts and it is challenging every false teaching that's around them. I remember that I needed Christian community. When I first became a believer, I had nobody in my family that was walking with me. I remember being around my loved ones who would ask me, why do you believe in a God? How do you know that it's not a she? How can you believe in a God that would do such harsh things, such as seeing Christians kill individuals who are innocent over history, seeing Christians enslave people over history? How can you believe in this God? People would say, see, the God that you believe in is a God that's just, that the, the white man is trying to make you believe. All of these things were being said to me, and I was only 14 to 15 years old. I have no frame of work reference in order to, to debate or argue with individuals. All I had to do when I was beat up and taking punches, you know what I had to do? I had a band of brothers that, that would help me walk through some of the struggles that I was walking through. And the courage that I needed was one to continue to believe and not doubt. Oftentimes we entertain the issues that come against the gospel, but yet we have no community to help us continue to fight. We fight with community. We don't fight alone. The gospel trains us to do this in such a way. See, the way I understand this is that I remember when we were growing up, it was like, listen, if one of y'all fight, who, who, who fight? Everybody fight. If she get in a fight, you in a fight. And if you not in a fight, what happened? You in trouble. You in trouble. So you gonna have to fight somebody. It's your mama, your aunt, or somebody if you didn't fight out there, right? This idea is, is that we have to live that same way. That if our brothers and sisters are out here fighting and battling on a week-to-week -week basis and we're so insular, we're only focused on what we got going on, we only, we only focus on what we can do, the fact of the matter is we're not fighting with, them, with uh, one another. We're fighting, we're fighting our own individual battles. 
The gospel continues to help us see outside of ourselves. And that's what Paul says. I'm struggling that their hearts may be encouraged. And then I'm struggling that they may be knit together, instructed in love, literally instructed in love. Oftentimes, we look at the gospel and this love thing as so, so romanticized that we don't think that it means struggle means love. The struggle, the love oftentimes can mean just feeling good. And if you are, if you ever love somebody that was hard to love, I'm not even just going to say married couples, so you got some family members that you know it's just hard to love. You, 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 every time you see him, you just, oh my God. I, I got to love, I got to love him. Uh-huh. But the fact, I want you to hear this statement that only, only a, a love that which penetrates the heart and wells up from the heart can sustain the sort of unity that's needed for the body. This sort of unity that's needed for the body is this Ephesians 5 when you walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice of God. Walking in love with one another is to demonstrate through the death of Christ, which is linked to an Old Testament sacrificial system. What am I saying or what is the Bible saying regarding this? That love means you have to give up something. Love means that it is absolutely sacrificial. That it is this very thing that if you love somebody and you know they struggle with smoking weed or drinking, you're not finna take them to the party. If you love somebody that you know struggling with sex addictions or struggling with some other form of addiction, you're not gonna put them in a situation that we're gonna, they're gonna fall. If you love a brother and a sister that you know who have been trying to leave the streets, you're not going to take them back to the same environment or try to call them back into the same environment which they struggle with. You're not going to do that to them. Why? Because you love them. This is a very practical aspect of our lives. We won't reintroduce trauma to people that we love. But we also will see that in this idea in which we sacrifice, it means that you don't necessarily allow your personality or a personality test dictate how you do community. I know you may be an introvert, but that doesn't mean that you simply live in isolation. If we're going to be knit together, if we're going to be held together, instructed to love one another, I know that you may have your own thing going on. You may be an extrovert, but you're not going to allow that to dictate the way you love. You may be an any Enneagram 15, 16, 17. Oh, I got the numbers wrong, right? My bad. But you won't allow that to dictate the way you love. The very thing that should call us to love one another and be knit together is the spiritual reality that's consistently transforming our hearts. The way that we love is the what we lay down, how we sacrifice our time, how we sacrifice our resources. Some of us are making more money than we ever made in our lives, and yet we are only spending it on ourselves. We don't look and say, how can I help donate to another ministry? How can I help with the mercy fund and make sure that people are getting food on their table? How can I help to make sure somebody's bills are being paid? How can I help a brother and or sister? Some of us are stingy with our time. We can't be knit together being stingy with our time. 
We have to go outside of ourselves in order to connect deeply with one another, in order for us to be able to fight as we are knit together, uniformed, moving in one direction as a community that's intentionally intrusive and gospel-driven. Let me keep moving. Because I know some of y'all are like, man, he getting into my me time. I work a whole week and he want me to talk to somebody else. But this is what it means to be a body of believers, beloved. Because our focus is on something that's far, far more supreme. Right? Remember, this entire sermon series is the thrust of it is we submit ourselves to what's supreme in our lives. And if I'm supreme, if myself if I'm supreme in my own life, over my own community, that's what I'm going to prioritize. But then the other idea in which we learn how to fight is through Christ. Remember, encourage with community, knit together in love with community, full assurance in Christ. What does this full assurance mean? It's better than any, anything that we can ever imagine, but I want, you to get to, I want you to understand what Paul is saying. Look at verse 2. Going into verse 3, where he says, Their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance. You would like to underline in your Bible, underline full assurance. Of understanding and the knowledge of God's mysteries, which is Christ, which is Christ, in whom all hidden, in whom are, all, are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you just take for a moment and understand the fact that with faith in their setting, mystery cultures were regular. To have cults that actually were extremely prevalent in secret rituals and trying to establish relationships with God that resulted in some kind of perceived benefit sounds like the prosperity gospel to some of us. They're saying sounds like some kind of inspiration gospel to some of us. But the Colossians were actually being, aware, being made aware of the teachings that which taught them that the mystery of Christ, Paul using the same language, mystery, was far beyond what they, what, what they can ever imagine because it was revealing the plan for salvation through the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, something they had never heard, right? Now, what does this mean and, and how does this relate? Because the fact that we seek understanding from God is not simply trying to make a decision for ourselves or that God just opened up the door for the next job or that God just make a way for this next situation. But to seek understanding means to have the ability to understand things like righteousness, justice, being slow to anger, avoiding foolishness, and the ability to discern correctly. It was Solomon who prayed that he would have understanding in order, an understanding mind in order to govern people, in order to govern God's people, in which he had to make decisions for an entire nation. It was also knowledge, this idea of knowledge that is the same, that's closely knit to wisdom, which comes from God, and it benefits the community because you know what it does? It helps us begin to interact with one another. Some of us would have never thought of understanding being slow to anger. Some of us would have never thought that understanding means to avoid foolishness. Some of us, we entertain foolishness. I'm going to tell you right now, I do not entertain foolishness. Some of my family call me with foolishness and I just get off the phone. I, 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 oops, I got to call you back. I do not have time for foolishness. 
Because you know what, you continue to run into the issue of bumping your head with somebody that's acting foolish or being foolish in community. What the Bible, what this full assurance helps you is to understand in the community where someone is trying to persuade you, otherwise you disregard them in order because you understand and able to discern right from wrong, good from bad, evil and good. Lies and deceit. This knowledge is essentially tied to the fact that when you have wisdom, when some of us pray for so many different things, God, give me a new car. God, give me a new house. God, give me a new uh, pair of shoes. God, give me this. God, give me that. God, open up a door. God, make this happen. God, find me a boo. Help me to find my boo in church. God, help me to find something that's going to make me feel good. God, God, can I have, can I want, can I get? But the idea in which if we would just change that and our prayers would become God help me to have understanding and knowledge that reveals more of who you are. Because like a mining, like a miner in the coal mines, I'm essentially chipping away at the word of God. Always trying to understand and trying to get to the nuggets and trying to get to a deeper understanding of who he is and what's hidden in him. And see, the only way you can do that is this. Diving into it, reading it, dissecting it, asking hard questions and praying to God. This is how you fight, saints. But see, you can't allow yourselves to be deceived. This is the biggest point when you look at verse 4 because he says, I say this to you. I say this to you, attention, here's what I'm trying to say to you, this, I say this in order that you may not be deluded, deluded, deceived, you with persuasive speech, you can put that for plausible, plausible arguments, but persuasive speech, now get this, if anybody ever gave you anything fake, what are you going to do? You're going to analyze it, right? Somebody give you a fake ring, some fake jewelry. I remember one of my mentors, good friend, he didn't know no better. He gave me some fake Jordans. And I wore them, not knowing that they were fake for a second. I don't have them no more, I gave them away. Somebody else got to wear the fakeness. But what happened was I was like, these shoes, they just don't feel right. And he, he gave them to me like, I'm blessing you, brother. Boom. He's like, I never wore them. I'm like, okay, ooh, I, I had a free pair, and I'm wearing, I wore them to the barbershop one day, and I was like, I think I'm off. I think, so, I, think so, I think something wrong with my foot game. I'm going to have to walk out of here real quick. You can recognize fakeness when you're comparing it to the real. If you had real, which is Jesus, which is truth. You can discern, understand, have knowledge, wisdom in order to make the right decision. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? She might be cute, but she's not the one. He may be talking slick, but he ain't the one. Why is that important? It's because the fact of the matter is, is we can be deceived not only by knowledge, but we can be deceived in a relational component. Some of us are knitting ourselves and tying ourselves to people, but we don't know how to fight because we are tying ourselves to people that are holding us bondage. Yes. Yes. Second point is that gospel truth empowers us to be confident in Christ and not ourselves. Why is that important? 
Because when we need confidence, why do we need confidence? Sorry, why do we need confidence? Because in a society that tells us that the gospel is completely moralistic and that we can create our own destiny by simply trying to trust in Jesus and try to simply make our own way, what happens is we fall, we think we are the masters of our lives, we think we're the captains of our souls, we think we can find our own happiness, we think we can part our own ways, but the notion in which we suffer, it challenges that that theology. As soon as you go through something, you can't withstand it and your confidence is shaken. Because everything is supposed to look this particular way. But what if the gospel is trying to tell you that it's not about the way that you think it's supposed to look? Not about the way that you think it's supposed to be formed. I think this is what Paul tries to make sure that he gets to the people because everything that they're hearing, everything that they're listening to is the very thing that tries to call them to say, this is the confidence you need to have in deception, in selfishness, in self-gain, in giving your, making your name great. But the devil is the father of lies and he wants you to see that in every aspect of your life, you ought to denounce the deity of Christ. You ought to denounce every core tenet of your faith. The very thing that you was raised in believing, oh, when you get to college, forget it. Somebody told you wrong. Oh, when you get to college, don't believe it. Or when you get into, that's not true. Test the spirits by the spirits. So the Bible teaches us. As soon as somebody tries to come against what you believe, you have to test it. Why is that important for a community like us? Because we gotta hear this every time, saints. We have to hear this every time. Every time we're trying to bridge this gap to be a church that's different. Every time we're trying to go across barriers. Every time we're trying to do something in this church that's significant. You better believe that the gospel, I mean that the devil is trying to fight against the very gospel that we're preaching. You'll walk out of here right now and he'll say you're not good enough. You'll walk out of here right now and he'll say oh it's too many white people here. You'll walk out of right now, you'll say there's not enough black people. You'll walk out of right now and say, oh, I don't, I don't see myself. You'll walk out of right now and say, well, I don't, I don't believe what he was saying. Wow. Remember, I'm not saying this. I'm just, I'm just reading the Bible. Why is that important, saints? Because you ought to hold on to this. This is why Paul says, I'm absent, but I'm with you in spirit. How great a struggle, but I'm with you. And not only am I with you while I'm struggling, I'm yet rejoicing. And get this, he says, I have the power to see the good order and firm faith that you have in Christ. God has given him the power, enabled him to give him the confidence to understand that the the things that are working in the people of God are the very things that God is doing to unite them. Colossians 3, 13 says it's the very perfect harmony that we need in order to be held together. But see, here's where I think we wrestle, is that we don't understand that the gospel is both preventative and protective. That it helps us with our anxiousness. It helps us answering the questions that we have and we need it to be preventative and protective. Why? Because the illustration of the Spartan 300s helped me the most. Remember where they were. Knowing that they had come to die, sacrifice. But they were fighting for a purpose. And their purpose was far beyond their own selfish gain. But what Leonidas charged them with was to be together. 
And not only to be together, but as arrows were flying towards them, what did they do? In unison, they lift their shields, stood their ground, being unmovable. We have something far greater than shields. We have Jesus Christ, who is our, who is our shield, who is our protector, who prevents everything and protects us all the time. And how does he cause us to move together? Is it one voice in unison, one Lord, one faith, one baptism? He helps us to move together with one solid foundation. That anything that comes against us, we are able to withstand it. Every lie, every area of deception. This table is a representation of that. Jesus took two, two, two fish and five loaves. I know y'all thinking about the fish fry. But let me tell you about the two fish and the five loaves that he had taken. He had took it as a representation of the body being broken. The very thing that which he knew that he would sacrifice and be able to multiply himself to all people and energize his body, he said that I can make a miracle happen that would feed 5,000. Why is it that we don't believe that this God is so powerful, this gospel truth is so powerful that it gives us the confidence to fight? It gives us the ability to know that what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago, the blood is still powerful. His assurance is still faithful. His name is still great. He is not an option. And we are not a cafeteria community. We're one that we don't come here looking for what we want to get from, from one section. We're not, we're not looking to what we want to get over here. I just want the hot Cheetos. I'm going to pass over to Salisbury State. But the gospel is saying take all of it. Because what God has made for us and what he has done through his body gives us the ability to say that blessed assurance is mine. And beloved, I want you to understand that where you are right now, that God has given you full assurance in order to continue to fight because every false gospel that comes your way and every lie that is going to say, say something to you when you walk out of these doors is the very thing you have to know how to fight. Amen, somebody. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have given us the ability to trust in you more and more every day. There's so many things come against your name and who you are to us. So many different things come against you in the fact that we don't come here. Sometimes we don't come here to worship you. We come here mm -hmm. to worship ourselves. And I pray, God, that in this moment, as we partake of your body, as we join together in worship, that we love you and you alone more than anything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.